0: All right, join with me as we read the scriptures today. We're going to be looking at Galatians 6, 6 through 10, which says, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Don't be deceived. God isn't mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. So then, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Well, good morning, everybody, and thank you, worship team, for leading us in such uh, great praise and adoration of our Lord God and Savior, this morning. If you, uh, we're going to get right to work here. So, um, as Lawrence mentioned, uh, this is uh, the time we use to talk about a little bit about who we are and what we're doing, what our plans are for the coming year. We usually do this in March, but we're now doing it in December because of a number of things. Um, but you'll notice in the um, document the 2018 vision and plan. We won't be going through this like we typically do. You can read that on your own as uh, individuals and households and, and house churches, and I encourage you to do that and talk about it. But you'll notice at the bottom that there's a statement, and this is, this is our kind of our vision statement for what we want to do and be. Contributing to the flourishing and renewal of the Twin Cities through gospel work, gospel community, and gospel expansion that multiplies our efforts throughout the world. You'll notice that it's different than the one on the front of the membership covenant. You know, um, somebody asked me a couple of weeks ago what's changed uh, from our membership covenant that we wrote up a number of years ago into the one that we presented uh, just recently, and it was just some typos and and uh, so this is the old vision and mission statement. So if you've noticed that they're different. Um, we just forgot to change that at the front of the membership covenant, but it still really captures who we are and what we 're doing, advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the twin cities and beyond by preaching the gospel, equipping households and leaders, and planting churches that engage the city in love and good deeds so whichever one you read and enjoy the most, they both work um, but if you see that, I, I really want to just kind of touch on a few points there on the one in front of the the 2018 vision and plan the flourishing and renewal of the twin cities Um, the kingdom of god is the is the renewal of humanity it is the work of christ to bring life back to god's creation and to eliminate the source of evil and death and suffering and pain and so our work here should lead to the the flourishing of of humanity and the expansion of the kingdom of god where we live and we do that through um, the gospel, the gospel in our lives, the gospel in our families, the gospel in our church community. Uh, and we, we keep expanding that. And so we're not just focused on our own family, our own neighborhoods, our own city, our own state, but, but we have to be concerned with, with the, the entire world as well. And so we're trying to capture what it means for the kingdom of God to exist here and beyond. As The gospel went in the book of Acts from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the outermost parts of the world. The, God has always been concerned about the nations and about individual lives. So that, that's kind of the scope. And we do that through spheres of responsibility. Through spheres of responsibility. And this is kind of where we're going to break away from the document. Again, you can read that on your own. I just want to take some time to emphasize today uh, some things that we need to think about as we think about the as we think about the year ahead. Um, We have different spheres of responsibility. We have our individual lives that we have to be responsible for. Um, We have to make an effort as individuals to follow Jesus Christ, to renew our minds, to set our minds on the things above, to put off the old, to put on the new. We are called as individuals to walk and to walk in Christ and to follow Him as disciples. The next sphere is our households. Our households. Our households have uh, responsibilities, all right? And our households are called into uh, the work of God as well. And so that's. Um, Whatever whatever the household makeup, an individual can be a household, Um, mom, dad, kids, household, it's a traditional household, non-traditional households, there are households, and households have to fulfill the responsibilities of God as well. And so that requires whoever's in the household to come together in unity And to follow and to press, to follow Jesus and to press the household into faithfulness to God. And so that requires uh, leadership and stewardship and discussion and interaction and equipping the household for the work of Christ. And then there are churches. For us, it's house churches and and then the big church. And so that's where we come together as individuals and households and say, hey, Christ has called us to something as a house church. God has called us to something as a collective church. And so that's another sphere. And so we then have to work because we know the Spirit is working. Ephesians chapter 4 and chapter 3, the Spirit is working to bring the people of God into a place where God dwells in unity. And in unity, we are called to fulfill the purposes of God uh, for our lives and for the world around us. And so the, the, as, our, as our spheres grow, the need for unity grows because we're not just talking about one person. We're not talking about a small household. We're talking about uh, dozens and maybe hundreds and maybe thousands of people that all have to, to get together in unity to accomplish and to fulfill what Christ has called us to. And then we have the kingdom of God. If you look in the the beginning of the book of Revelation, he's writing the letters to the seven churches, and then he calls them the kingdom of God. And so we have a responsibility as well to work together in unity with other churches because we are not the only church. There are 3,500 churches in the Twin Cities across all kinds of denominational, traditional, and theological spectrums. And and out of that 3,500, there are churches that we are called to work with In unity. And so these these spheres are a way for us to think about how to fulfill our responsibilities. But in, in, in all of these spheres, as we saw in the book of Titus, the end result of our labors in the Lord are good works. Our good works. We saw in Titus. Uh, the various ways that those good works are expressed. Elders engage in good work in preaching and teaching and leading and protecting the church so that leads to the good works that the church community can engage in because they are accurately understanding the truth of the gospel and and abiding in Jesus Christ. And then therefore the good works that they engage in in the shepherding context of, of a local church are there for the good works that are done within the context of the family, loving our spouses and our children and our neighbors and uh, obeying and submitting to the governing authorities, our employers, treating our employees right and fair, living in this world in a way that leads to good works. And then as a whole, we see that the, that the church in terms of its life in the world, is called to good works and to meet pressing needs. To meet pressing needs. And, and pressing needs is also um, the engagement in works of mercy and justice, as we will see here, as we get into, um, into what really Christ has called us to. And so these good works are the end game. We spend a lot of time in our house churches talking about the things that we are responsible to do as individuals, families, churches, and networks of churches in the world. But I want to take some time today to address um, Jesus' call and the apostles' call um, to meet pressing needs and the call to the poor. All right, the poor. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that means. If to read uh, Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. And really the, the, the passage, the, the last verse or so. Um, Be sure to engage in doing good. Do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. We have a responsibility to everyone. And that passage is beautiful. You will reap what you sow. If you sow to the flesh, meaning your own selfish desires, you're not going to experience eternal life. And as we've talked about, eternal life is not this, this thing, okay, okay yes, I've believed in Jesus Christ. He saved me from my sin. I'm gonna be in heaven and I'm not gonna go to hell. Okay, that is an aspect of eternal life. But the, but the significant another significant aspect of eternal life is the experience of the kingdom of God right here and now in our hearts and in our lives. And so when that passage says you will reap what you sow, if you reap to the flesh, you're going to reap the flesh, which means uh, discord and conflict and discontent and and all kinds of evil things. But if you reap to the Spirit, you're going to reap eternal life. If you sow to the Spirit, you're going to reap eternal life, which means you're going to have an experience of the fullness of God in your heart and in your household and in your church and your network of churches. Christ said, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly, That's eternal life, here and now. So when it says, if you continue to press forward in doing good, you will reap a reward. Persevere through the challenging times, and you will reap what you sow. You will reap eternal life. You will reap abundance. And so um, as we look at our calling and engaging good deeds we have to address this calling that Jesus has, that Jesus demonstrated, and the apostles teach um, that we have to recognize that we are called to, again, the poor. Now, Jesus also says, do not show favoritism to the poor or favoritism to the rich. Okay, We've got to do good to everyone. All right, Do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. All right, so there's a prioritization that it comes. Now, who are the poor? Who are the poor? And I'm going to be coming on a Proverbs. Proverbs just has hordes of understanding in regard to this issue. The Proverbs indicate that people are poor for two reasons. One, their wickedness. Now, on the conservative end of the spectrum, all right, from a, I don't want to say conservative, from the right end politically. All right, I'll say that. Um, there, the, the poor are primarily poor because of wickedness, and they're kind of historically have been blind to injustice. All right, and on the left end of things, historically. Um, The poor are poor because of injustice and not because necessarily their wickedness. But we really have to see that the poor are poor because of wickedness, their own wickedness, and because of oppression and injustice. Um, Oftentimes, the poor are refugees. Oftentimes, the poor are minorities. Oftentimes, the poor are victims. For whatever reason, their low position was taken advantage of by somebody in a higher position uh, and they were exploited. They were exploited, and so there are a lot of circumstances that create these power imbalances. Okay, and obviously, all of this stuff in the news lately about sexual harassment and the power imbalances that exist, and how that uh, is a is a context that breeds these kinds of things. Okay, so. Uh, It's not a, I mean, in regard to sexual harassment, and as you've been reading or listening, I'm sure it's, it's a, quote, male issue, but the issue exists broadly when there are power imbalances, and there are people who are using power imbalances to exploit those who are weaker In our culture, this often then leads to crime, it leads to incarceration, and a further worsening of the generational effects. Now, so when we look at the poor, there's wickedness and there's oppression and injustice. Okay, but uh, oppression and injustice will lead to wickedness. And so you can't just look at a situation and say, oh, they're poor because of their wickedness, I don't have any responsibility to them. All right? We are called to help the poor, and we're called, here, let me, we're called to them for the, I'm going to read some Proverbs about why we're called. Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. All a poor man's brothers hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursues them with words, but does not have them. The fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. So without getting into extreme detail on these, what you can see is basically the ignoring of the poor. The ignoring of people who are in places um, where poverty exists, where weakness exists. You can see, if you're wealthy, you're going to have a lot of people around you. But if you're poor, your friends and your family won't even bother to hang out with you. A lot of discrimination occurs because of economic status. Okay, If you look at the history of, of, of just racism in the United States, racism... Uh, exists. It exists in every culture. It has throughout all time. Okay, but a lot of racism is motivated by economics. Okay, Europeans and Africans sold slaves to Americans, who were Europeans at the time, but on America. All right, for economic benefit, primarily in the South in the plantations. Okay, so you have, and then you create an entire society of people who. Um, are of a certain race or color, but now they've been put into this lower position for economic gain. And so now you are uh, holding in contempt this entire um, race of people. And, so then, and then you're starting to justify what you're doing for economics uh, and race through science and religion. And so if you look in the literature at that time, there's a lot of, of, of biblical and scientific backing of the economic and racial discrimination that was going on in the South. Anyway, I'm just saying, these things are oftentimes connected. in Often, a lot of the racism that has occurred in the United States, um, not just white and black, but Protestants against Catholics, which also had uh, a relationship between where from Europe people were coming Okay? And there's the threat of, of new immigrants taking the jobs of people that are here. And so there is, again, economic fear and disparity that's also showing up in ethnicity and race. And so all these, all these things are, are intermixed. But oftentimes, and you don't see a lot of writings in the Proverbs around discrimination that occurs because of race. What you see in the Proverbs is discrimination and favoritism You see this in the New Testament as well, that occurs because of economic status. Economic status. And so we are called to this need because the rest of the world will ignore them. And the only solution that's going to work from a long term and systemic perspective is the gospel the Spirit, and the church. So if we are wanting to see the kingdom of God, which is oftentimes, oftentimes equated with prosperity, okay, now I'm not, you guys know, I'm not a prosperity gospel preacher, but the promises to Adam and Eve, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, the kingdom of Israel as a whole, was always coupled with, I will make you a people, I will make you a name, I will make you a family, I will make you a nation. I will bring blessing and prosperity to you. In fact, you know, the the, the scriptures are divided into the law, the prophets' writings, the Old Testament. Prosperity was promised as a function of God's good work to Israel. And at the beginning of the prophets, in the book of Joshua, he says, follow the Lord Follow the law, and you will prosper. The beginning of the book of the writings, Psalms, chapter 1. Meditate on the law of God daily and every night, and you will prosper. The kingdom of God is prosperity. Okay, I'm not talking about the kingdom of God, it makes everybody rich. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the kingdom of God brings prosperity and blessing, and wholeness, and fullness to all people. If these are the people that our culture most ignores as a consequence of of sin and its corruption on this earth, then the people of God have to be the ones that as a result of their calling, okay, if we don't make intentional efforts, because one of the things you see in Proverbs 2 is that it has to be an intentional effort because we, again, if these people are not a part of our lives, In the normal flow of our things, okay, if we're not in the sphere of being poor, we're not going to see the needs. We're not going to address the needs. So we have to, as Christians, recognize that a lot of our world is being ignored for some reason or another that is oftentimes the consequence or what leads to economic um, troubles and poverty, which then leads to further, I mean, a rich man's wealth is his strong city. A rich man's wealth means he's going to become stronger and stronger and it's going to protect him, whereas the poverty of the poor eventually leads to their ruin. Eventually, So, the, so Christ has called us into a place of intervention. Of intervention. Enjoy and prosperity is the end result. Look at these Proverbs. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Okay. Now, it is so easy for us to say, "Yeah, when we get to heaven, there's going to be rewards. Proverbs is not talking about heaven. It doesn't talk about heaven. It is daily life in the here and now, Solomon's observations. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. He who is generous and sows generously reaps generously. Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. So we're called to this. It's an aspect of what we do as as Christians, as individuals, households, churches, networks of churches, And we have to keep this comprehensive perspective. We always have to be thinking about ourselves as individuals and the time and the resource and the energy it takes for us to walk with the Lord. I was talking to somebody this week and just kind of going back over his years and his noted times where he had very focused and devoted attention to his walk with the Lord. And he can see that and he can see his seasons and how well he was doing. And he said, you know, when I, when I made a conscious effort to dedicate energy to knowing God and to meditating on his word, I was prospering. And when I didn't, I didn't prosper. So we have, as individuals, we have a responsibility. But if we love Jesus, we have to love his disciples. So that takes us into our families, It takes a lot of energy to be a spouse, to have children, to take care of extended family, parents, brothers and sisters, all of that. A lot of energy. Then the call doesn't stop there. The call then is to our churches. And so we've organized as house churches, and so then we have a a sphere of responsibility to all these people that, that are our family in the family of God. And the 10 to 30 people and the kids that are a part of your house church. You're respons- we're responsible for each other. We are members one of another, as Lawrence did a great job preaching on last week. And so those needs are huge. And then we're called to the world. <laughs> Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. The needs will never end. You will never be in a spot where you can take lightly your walk in the Lord. Your family will never stop, get to the point where you can kind of slack off and not be a family member. The church is inexhaustible in terms of its needs, and obviously, even a small church like ours, the needs are never ending. And the world, obviously, until Jesus returns, the needs are without measure. We have to keep this comprehensive picture, all right? even though there's a lot of limitations. And so uh, you can see here on the vision and plan, the first page, which is kind of usually the theme for the year, uh, a a comprehensive and sober-minded approach to our mission. It takes commitment, it takes courage, it takes humility, and it takes sober-mindedness. The commitment we're called as disciples of Jesus. Why we have this membership covenant it's an opportunity and way to say hey yes indeed I'm committed it takes courage because there's an acknowledgement hey the work is never done the work is massive the work is massive and if you really are trying to meet pressing needs of this world if you're really trying to engage the world in mercy and justice and what it needs and you're not just wanting to put band-aids on things but are really wanting to create systemic changes for the long term holy cow holy cow you have to be, we have to be courageous. We have to think about work that, you know, it's, we're not gonna see the end result in five years, and 10 years. It might be the next generation. It might be two generations from now. And there will be suffering, so it takes courage. It takes humility. Humility. We have to take a humble look at our resources and gifts. We are a small church. We are a young church. We don't have very many households or individuals That are in their 50s and 60s and 70s. But if you get into your 50s and 60s and 70s, you should still have quite a bit of energy. You have more time. You have more financial resources. That's where really a lot of work can be done. But you know, there's not a lot of people that are strongly committed, significantly engaged in churches that are in this older generation. That's a problem. Part of the problem is that cultural, and that there's kind of this sense that we don't need them anymore, and everybody wants to be 20. They want to look like they're 20. They want the freedom of the 20 years old. It, it, that's just not where things are at. But we, those generations, those, those at age group of people, there's a lot of Christian activity and engagement <laughs> that that generation can do. We don't have very many of those people. We got a lot of young people raising young children, and that is mission. That's great mission. That's needed mission. And if you shortchange that work, the future generations are not going to be doing well. But we have to take a look at it. When we When we think about all of these things and the comprehensive mission that God has given us, we have to take a step back and recognize, okay, we're not going to be able to do it all. And i got to make sure that we do a good job. We need to make sure that we do a good job with our kids but we are a generous church. We are a generous church. Our rate of giving per household is higher than the national average for evangelical churches. Our consistency is given in giving. You guys, I have never seen, all right, I've been around a lot of churches and looked at a lot of church budgets. I've been in leadership in two churches, but I've, through some of the work that I've done over the years, the typical pattern for giving in a church uh, is very mountaintop and valley. And a lot of churches are operating in deficits until December, and then they raise a huge pile of money, and then they use that pile of money from December to carry them through January through November of the following year. You guys, we, I mean, you get the reports that the finance team posts in the city, we are super consistent, and it's just been over the years, just super steady, incremental growth five to ten percent a year it's amazing it's something that i don't know why i don't have any idea why i got some ideas but i don't i'm not going to share them with you about why we have this but our church is a generous church and we're a serious church we're a serious church we take the word of god seriously we teach the whole counsel of god uh, you guys know we're not here for emotional responses. We—it's—it's it's a heavy commitment. The comments that I get from people in our network here in the Twin Cities—we are a heavy commitment church. So we're young, we're small, but there's—we've got some great—and I didn't—we could have spent a lot more time on where who we are and where we're at. But we can't meet every pressing issue. We have to prayerfully look at what is before us. And we have to be sober-minded, which means we need to prioritize. You know, if you've traveled on an airplane, they—you know—you've heard this a hundred times. If you traveled on an airplane, it's like, okay, they go through their emergency routine. If an oxygen mask drops from the ceiling, be sure to put yours on first before you help anybody else. Okay, why do they do that? They do that because um, if you fall on the floor because you don't have. Air, that's going to take more resources from others. You're not going to be able to help anybody, and then you're going to take resources from other people helping others. So put your oxygen mask on first, and then you can help others. All right? We have to prioritize. We're not going to have strong families if the individuals within that family are not following Jesus in a devoted way. We're not going to have strong churches if we don't have strong households. And so there's this prioritization that occurs. Like Paul said, be good to all. Do good to all, especially to those who are the household of faith, okay? Strengthen the church and don't ignore the world. Meet the world's needs. But you've got to operate from a base of strength. So what does this look like for us? Well, the second thing on what it means to be sober-minded, we have to guard against knee-jerk and emotional responses. There are a lot of churches that meet a lot of needs that are emotional knee-jerk responses, Okay. I'm not going to get into what all the various issues are. They're legitimate needs. Okay, but there seems to always be kind of like flashy needs. Like, ooh, if we could do that, that would be cool. Right? It's not how to evaluate and engage in needs. We have to be prayerful, and we have to see what God has put before us with the people and resources that we have. Otherwise, we could spread too thin. And also, uh, again... I'm not a Band-Aid type of person, all right? There are needs that need to be met that are short-term, okay? And there are ministries and churches that meet short-term needs. I really like to think about meeting needs from a systemic and long-term way. I wanna wanna make, make some changes that are gonna produce results that are broad and systemic. So what does this look like to us? Well, obviously, devotion to following Christ as individuals, devotion to our work of raising our families. We've got to be devoted to those things, and we spent a long time talking about those. And we have to be devoted to one another, especially our house churches. In our house churches, we have many needs. I just want to highlight a few. Many needs that have been met gospel needs, physical needs. I, I, I'm sure there's not a house church present out of the, the 12 that we have. You can see them listed in the document where rent and food and utilities are. Addressed in house churches. Our house churches have always done it. 10 years, we've always had needs, and all the various iterations of house churches that we've had. Those are physical needs that come up. Sometimes there's non essential needs Christmas presents. Maybe there's an individual or or a household in our house church, and for whatever reason, wickedness, (laughs) all right, or oppression and injustice, but there's a need. Hey, let's get some Christmas presents for this family. That's happened. There are justice and mercy needs that happen in our house churches. We've had house churches engage in legal advocacy to protect spouses from abuse. One particular story, um, we had uh, a woman with children in a house church uh, the the woman found out that her husband was a drug dealer. This is after they had moved out of state. So the house church paid for moving expenses, paid for several months' rent, confronted the husband, provided protection. Lots of time, lots of energy, lots of money. We have a house church right now that's uh, providing expense travel expenses for an individual in a family who's not in our church, but the, the other the part of the family is, um, but this individual was kidnapped at a young age and essentially sold and decades later discovered his family. After decades. All right? And so the house church is coming together to provide travel expenses because after he was sold, he was well, put up for adoption to the United States. So the house church is helping reunite that individual with his family after decades, after decades. And so these kinds of stories have existed in the church as long as we've been around. Okay, so that's just... A lot of those stories don't get told. It's physical needs, it's justice and mercy needs, legal needs, right? These things happen. We should probably tell more of those stories. It might be something to do more. But it's happening. It's happening. And then being devoted to all is a kingdom of God. You have opportunities at work, at school. Gospel opportunities, meeting needs opportunities as, you're, as households. Some households are meeting needs by adopting children, which is another all kinds of, of, of mercy and justice involved in that. Um, helping the poor, fostering children, neighbors that have needs. A lot of you as individuals in households are, are meeting needs that, again, the rest of the church doesn't even know about. And, and it's ways that the whole church isn't going to be getting behind you on, but it's something that you as an individual or as a householder are sensing a strong call from Jesus Christ to do. But as a church, we've had two things that really have emerged Twin Cities Ministries. Um, again, this is something we didn't just like, hey, pick something, pick a social cause and get involved in it. No, it was a lot of prayer and then the emergence of people and opportunity and calling and resource that all have to combine at the same time. And then the need is massive here in Twin Cities Ministries. I've spent time explaining that. You'll get more information in that document. But the ministry as a whole is addressing many needs and many justice issues. Poverty, substance abuse, crime, race, fatherhood, family, incarceration, recidivism. And despite the size and the scope of the problems that this whole sphere of stuff creates for our society. Economic strain, social strain. It's huge. It's massive. Most people don't know about it. Why? Because if we get to a place of material prosperity, we ignore everything else. But Christ calls his people out of that tunnel vision and, and to look at where there's need in the world. And Christ brings that need to us, and we can't ignore it, and the gospel, and the church, and the kingdom are the only solution. Yes, there's going to be uh, non-profit organizations. Yes, the state is going to have a role. Yep. But if we're wanting to see the kingdom of God flourish, the kingdom of God has to be in those kinds of contexts. And so we provide a three-part continuum of care. Corrections where we're in the jails, we're in the system, we're in the courts, in legislation. Treatment, okay. Detox, a place to stay, counseling, medications, okay? And then aftercare, which is our discipleship home effort. We have a big need this year. We started the ministry in 2011. And uh, we have finally gotten to a point where we've kind of gone through fits and starts and met obstacles and tried things and failed at things. And we finally, we believe we have a, a model in place that's going to work. That is working. We've got history. We've got records. We've got a consistent you know, history of, of meeting our budget. We've got a great board. But we need an executive director. I've been volunteering in this role in a very pathetic way. I, I, just, I just have a certain amount of capacity. Uh, and I don't work seven days a week. I, I, I work six, but I don't work seven days a week. And I like to spend time with my family and fishing and woodworking and other kinds of things. And, and we have to have somebody that can fundraise, that can oversee the ministry, that can, can grow the ministry. We need an executive director. And we need to expand what we're doing also in terms of programming. So our budget's about uh, 230000 a year. We need to grow that to 330000 And we need to do that this year. We need to raise $130,000 in new money. Last year Twin Cities Church gave $93,000 to Twin Cities Ministries, almost half the budget. We haven't opened this up broadly. We've made some, you know, we've done some things and people have met the need. But $93,000, that is not that's zero. That is from our general budget. Our general budget's right around 300 grand a year. So in addition to our general budget of paying your pastors and staff and all of the things that we need money for here as a church, which Galatians 6 is speaking to. Galatians 6 is about supporting your pastors. So we do that. But on top of that, we throw $93,000 at Twin Cities Ministries. We need to take that. My goal for this year, I'd love us to get to about 160000 I, I want us as a church to do half of what the need is. We're working with New Life Church of Woodbury. We're getting other church partnerships, which is Kingdom of God Network stuff but we really need to take this to the next level. It is a, it is a unique ministry, it's a unique op- opportunity. We are in these three spheres, and that's the call, that's the call. The other thing we're doing is the effort in Mozambique. Okay? Again, a situation where we're dealing with uh, effects of colonialism, uh, there is poverty, there's discrimination, there are education issues, there's, there's job creation, and all, all kinds of social issues. It's not, just, it's not just gospel advancement and strengthening churches. It is a lot of kingdom of God stuff. Um, the need for that annually is $20,000 a year. And we also gave $20,000 a year to that last year. So there's no growth there. It's just those are the, that's the need before us. The needs are all around us. The gospel needs to expand. Churches need to be started. Churches need to be strengthened. That's what we're doing here. That's what we're doing in Mozambique. That's what we're doing in Portugal. That's a connected project. We'll always have the poor with us. The calling is large. And Jesus calls us to enjoy what we have. 1 Timothy 6, those who are rich in this world, tell them, teach them to enjoy what they have and to share with those who are in need. So we have to enjoy. It's not all work. If we don't enjoy and celebrate, then it's, then we're not experiencing the kingdom of God. There are reasons why there are so many feasts in the Old Testament. The need is always there. Challenges are always there. But we have to take some time to say praise God for who he is and how he has blessed us and given us things to enjoy. God is moving. Christ is shepherding. The Holy Spirit is moving in the world. So, it's a big vision. Lots of things. Lots of things. Almost $200,000 we're asking the church to think about giving. It's done about 120 dollars up to this point a year. Beyond the budget. So let's proceed with humility and sober-mindedness to be faithful to this calling. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for, um, thank you for life, abundant life, that even in the midst of suffering and challenge, you have given us great joy and gratitude, which causes us to praise you. Thank you for music. Thank you for the delights of this world. Your creativity and beauty and power are so evident. And thank you for God that we can experience them. And your Son's precious, and we pray. Amen.